Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. An A&E original podcast. So this is a part of... <laughs> Did you remind me? This is a story all about how... <laughs> Kirby and Amir turn A&E upside down. Hey! Can that be our song? Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Table is Ours. This is a podcast where we sit down with our Black faves. That's in music and sports and writing to have vulnerable and deep conversations on Black people in general. Our vulnerabilities, our motivations, our weaknesses, and what can come next. I am Amira, and I'm here with my co-host, the amazing Kirby Dixon. Hey, girl, hey. Kirby is a champagne drinker, Philly native, and a Beyonce stan. And this is my girl, Amira Lawali brunch connoisseur from Houston, Texas, H-Town Down, same place as the Beyonce and Megan the Stallion, and just an all-around boss babe. Our day jobs is working in TV, and now our nighttime jobs, side gigs, whatever you want to call it, is hosting this podcast. Girl, how are you? I'm good. 2021 is looking up. I'm ready to put last year's trash characteristics, toxic traits behind us. And yeah, I'm just, I'm ready to manifest all this greatness that I think we're destined for. It's time, girl. How are you? I'm good. Because we scammed them into giving us a show. Yes. (laughs) Say it again. (laughs) Girl, we have a show. We have a whole ass show. We have a whole podcast. Honestly, this podcast came out of us not feeling like something was on TV for us. Like a way to get our voices out and hear other voices, answer questions that we had, just have a conversation. I just wanted to feel good about who I was talking to and like who was speaking to me. Yeah, and I think quite frankly, until recently, there haven't been a lot of people at the forefront of our industry that look like us. And we named this podcast The Table is Ours because we realized very early on that this world, this industry is ours for the taking. It's not just about having a seat at the table, but it's also about having a voice in the room. And if that means we have to make our own table, that's exactly what we're going to do. And we don't have to do it alone. We have each other. Exactly. That's the fun part. How are you feeling about it? What are you excited about? I feel great because we just recorded our very first episode with the Big Frida. And it was amazing. Yeah. We had such an amazing conversation with Big Frida, the queen diva. Uh, We got so real with her. We talked about Black queer identity. We talked about her love for her hometown of New Orleans, Louisiana. And you know we had to talk to her about how she keeps her hair laid and her nails did all of the time. So let's get into it. Hi, I'm Kirby. Kirby. <laughs> I'm Amira. Hey. So nice to meet you. So nice to meet you. Both of you guys. Appreciate it. First question we just wanted to ask, like, it's been a crazy, I guess we're past the year now, but like, how are you? 
like, how are you doing? How are you handling everything with the pandemic and like injustice and everything else we've like had to process during this last year and a half now? Well, honestly, I'm just taking it one day at a time, you know, as we all can do. You know, things have gotten rough at the beginning of the pandemic and through the grace of God, I've made it through, you know. Amen. I'm grateful to still be here and be able to tell my story and be alive. I I had to deal with having COVID and I got through that phase. But, you know, for the most part, everything that everybody else has to do right now, you know, just (laughs) figuring it all out, you know, every step of the way. Yeah, you say a day at a time. And I feel like that's all Amir and I do is we check in every day and just like, girl, how are you today? Yeah. yeah. Literally not even a day, like an hour at a time. I'm like, how am I feeling right now in this moment? Yeah. And then I can plan for the next hour after that. Yeah, for sure. All we can do, <laughs> you know. How is your hair and makeup always laid and like always done? Your nails. <laughs> it's an art form because I'm over here in the quarantine struggling. Okay. Okay. Like <laughs> my press on nails fell off last night in my sleep. So I do not have them on anymore. <laughs> I woke up with four nails. So please share any tips or secrets. You know, honestly, just having the glam squad come and make sure that I'm always looking right and giving them something as well to do and, and stay busy during this whole pandemic. You know, just having my team on my side and making sure that every time I'm, you know, on the internet or stepping out for an event that I'm looking right. Just keeping a ship tight, you know. Okay, so tips from Frida. Have a glam squad on deck is basically what I just yeah. learned. <laughs> Listen, I can't make up my own face to save my life. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about that. I don't think I've put makeup on my face since last March, maybe, when we were in the office. Wow. And so yeah. today was a struggle. So know that everything that we're doing is for you today. <laughs> because we knew if we were interviewing you, we had to come correct. Well, y'all both still look cute. Very cute. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Other things that we talk about, obviously, this podcast is about all things Black culture, Black issues. Uh, We want to really uplift, you know, incredible Black figures in this community that are doing incredible things just like you. But one of the things that we struggled with or I struggled with personally is when we're talking about our appearance as Black people and how to kind of like navigate that in non-Black spaces. And I mean, like we both are in corporate America. One thing that you don't have to deal with, (laughs) except for when you're doing interviews and things like that. But like when I was back in the office, I was changing my hair weekly, Uh maybe. Like, I'm known for the one, okay, she has natural hair today. Okay, she has a wig today. Uh, Oh, wait, okay, this is a weave. This is braids. What is happening, Kirby? Yes, girl, break it up. (laughs) Just break it up. You can't keep them knowing how you're coming, girl. Right? If you don't feel good about yourself, how are you supposed to, like, come to work with a pep in your step? But I will say it's changed recently, but we would be in these white spaces, and I would get comments all of the time. And it was never like, oh, girl, your hair looks so good. It was like, oh, Kirby, you changed your hair again. Oh, what are you going to do next week? You know, Uh so kind of navigating these like really interesting, intricate, non-Black spaces has been a struggle. So in that way, quarantine has been a little bit of a blessing (laughs) because you can really wake up and be who you want to be and be as you are uh, 24-7. So that's been a good thing. Oh, yeah, most definitely. But, you know, for me, I just go and be myself regardless of what situation I'm in, you know, no matter what space I'm in, if it's, uh, you know, all white space or, you know, a mixed space, whatever, I go in and I give them straight, just me, all of my fabulousness, you know, and, you know, I continue to change my look and my hair and the outfits. So it's it's also, you know, a creative process of being able to change your art in, in the way that you present yourself. And that's what I love so much about being Black. 
we're never the mm-hmm. same. Each week I'm changing my hair and my nails and, you know, right. my makeup. So I, I want to look different as well. So I feel you. And, you know, but for this quarantine, being where we're stuck inside or whatever, I'm still like, baby, flip it this way, flip it that way, you know? <laughs> it gets a little complicated, but I'm always trying to flip the strip. Do you have a favorite look? I mean, just more of a natural beat. You know, I like a natural beat. I don't like to be too dramatic with with the looks or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, soft as possible is, is what I like. You know, that way when I do want to go extra glam or, or extra fabulous, you can see the effect right away. So I'm always wanting a natural beat on a daily basis. Yeah. How much of your appearance like ties to Big Frida? Like how much of the hair does that add to like your stage persona? I mean, I guess about all of it because, you know, the look is what gets them going. When, you know, when you hit that stage and you step out, they want to see, you know, what type of fabulousness you're going to bring this time. How long is the hair? How big is the hair? So every time I'm stepping on stage, we're trying to step it up a notch and give them something different to look forward to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing about you like staying in your truth no matter what, because I've struggled with that so much in this last year. Of course, like quarantine, like we were all having problems, like whether our hair changes our nails, but I had brain surgery three months ago. I just got back. It all went well. Thank, thank God. God. But what I kind of had to come to terms with and like Kirby was a friend network who like I confided in. As soon as I told people I was having brain surgery, I just started complaining about the fact that I was going to have my, like they were going to shave my head and that was like the end of me. <laughs> like I wasn't worried about like what they were going to right. do. I was worried about like how I was going to feel up on my edges. And I found myself arguing with like my surgeon, well, if you cut here, like I can wear this wig. And he was like, this is where I need to cut. So I think it's just a realization that like so much of how I feel, like I don't think it's a bad thing either. Like I'll go to therapy on it soon and like mm-hmm. dwell on it. But so much of like how I look and feel, whether it's hair, hair and nails, goes to who I am, like how my voice comes out and like how I share it in work and like how people perceive me. It just makes me feel better overall. It does. I mean, you know, you just, when your hair and your makeup and your nails and everything is on point, you feel better about yourself. You feel more confident. Mm-hmm. You're ready mm-hmm. to go in the room and light the room up because you're feeling good. You're looking good. So it really helps. I, I, I definitely understand what you're talking about. Because when you're in those moments and you're laying in the hospital bed or wherever you're at and you think, oh, my God, I don't look like myself. You always want to look your best or look even better than what you expected. So I definitely feel your struggle on that. Yeah. yeah. Your hair doesn't look good. The whole Throw the whole outfit away. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't care. It could be Balenciaga, <laughs> this, Gucci, whatever. Yeah. If the hair is not together at the very least. And I've had times where I didn't like my makeup, you know, from certain makeup artists. But it was just like... I don't want to make them feel bad, you know, of not liking the look. So I just have to struggle with it on that day. But I wasn't confident with myself. And I'm like, it's not my fault. It's the makeup artist's fault. You know what I'm saying? Right. So a lot of times, you know, we get stuck in different situations where they're usually out of our control. Because if I have makeup come an hour before whatever the event is, there's no way to really have room to change the look or to add or whatever. So sometimes I get stuck in situations where I'm like, damn, I got to change the makeup artist. (laughs) (laughs) Like, let's start from scratch. (laughs) Yeah, just throw the whole face away. (laughs) Throw the whole face away. I hear you. Well, let's just get into the book, okay? 
God save the queen diva. Just so you know how this whole thing went down, Amir and I got notification that we were going to be talking to you. We ordered this book day of, and I kid you not, I finished this book in about, mm, not even a day and a half. Wow. <laughs> I would say. I think it took me a Saturday. It was so good and so visual. Um, Thank you. And just so telling. So congratulations on that because we're obsessed. Thank you. One of the overall themes that you touched on in the book is this idea of duality and identity. And not just the identity of yourself, meaning when you talk about growing up as a young Black gay kid in New Orleans, but also you touch on in really like clever ways, but lived experience, right? You touch on the duality and identity and struggle with identity of your friends. So I'm going to throw some of the names out just to show you that we did our research. Okay. <laughs> um, Addie and Joseph and Hockey and even your boo Devin, right? Like you touch on all of their struggles um, with identity and duality. And it took me back to college, to be honest, uh, when I was writing my senior thesis on one of James Baldwin's ideas of double consciousness of, you know, there being two types of, of Black people having to navigate two selves, two spaces mm -hmm. in this world because one is accepted and one is not. But for you, when did Freddie fully embrace big Frida? Like, how did you come into your own? And then how did you kind of start to adopt this mantra of like, baby, either you take me as I am or just get out of my way? Well, you know, I think my, it started with, um, I think it started with middle school where, you know, I was called a lot of different names and picked on and I was still trying to figure out who I was and to identify where I was going in life and, and the struggles of being black and being gay and growing up in New Orleans. And as time went on and when I stepped into high school, I think that's where the transition started to happen where I knew I was going into another grade. I knew I was going to a different bunch of kids that I had to deal with. And middle school kind of prepared me for high school of that journey, knowing that, okay, now I'm going to have to deal with the bigger folks mm -hmm. that's going to pick on me, the bigger kids that's going to call me names and the bigger kids that I'm going to have to fight. So as I was doing my transition from middle school to high school, I knew then that I would have to step up and be a little bit stronger than who I was in middle school. And as I started to grow and still continue to figure out who I was, I think it was, you know, the help of my mom who really helped embrace who I was. She had my back. She was my biggest supporter. She, you know, was ready to fight for me any given moment. And that's what gave me strength, you know, having a great support system at home to kind of go and deal with the people in the streets and, and, and of the world. And as time just went on, I continued to figure out ways to kind of flip the strip on the kids at school. They would call me names. I would say thank you. You know, I would give mm -hmm. them a great reply where they didn't know what to say if I said thank you or if I accepted the bad comments or the bad wording that they will tell me. So just over time, I think each year I grow more and more and started to accept myself and love myself more. And as, you know, time went on, by the time I got to 12th grade, there was nothing that nobody could tell me that would tell me down. I, I had them fought, right. you know, my whole middle school, my entire high school time. And I, I just started to embrace who I was and just step out into the world and say, you know what, they're going to have to accept me for who I am. And if they don't, we're going to have a problem. Mm -hmm. So it just was, you know, I, like I said, my mom having my back, you know, the family support, the people in the community having my back, 
kind of made me stronger for to deal with the things that I would have to face ahead of me. And and that's what I did, you know, just started to embrace and love me. Mm-hmm. It becomes so clear that you and your mom have a fantastic, incredible relationship. And I will say, you know, that superpower of what is Black Mamas. (laughs) Same thing happened here. (laughs) Like, I remember being in middle school and like being so confident with who I was for the longest time. Mm -hmm. To be honest, I was probably one of very few Black people in almost all of my classes (laughs) up through college. And it wasn't until middle school where one girl, who actually is now a friend of mine, but had kind of called me out and monikered me as an Oreo, right? This idea of like being Black on the outside, but like a little lighter, AKA acting white on the inside. And I was like, the way that I spoke and all this stuff, I just didn't understand. I was like, what do you mean? Like, I'm just being myself. But you talk about this power of like black mamas. My mom was like, girl, mm -mm." like you stand in your power. You figure out who you are. Again, the same thing that you said. My mom was like, you say, thank you. Cool. Keep it pushing. Like it's your issue, not mine. So I really resonated with that. And I appreciate you being so like candid in your book about it because from the first few chapters immediately, I was like, you know what? She's speaking my language, even though I've never met you before. Right. And, you know, the story can relate to a lot of different people who just have to find their way, you know, growing up. A lot of times we put ourselves in situations that we don't want to be in, but it's the foolishness of other people that we have to deal with. And they, they're they not certain of who they are. So a lot of times I was dealing with other people's problems that they were trying to put on me. It wasn't really my issue, you know? Yeah, it's all projection. Yes. Like that's what I've had to learn like growing up. Like it's most issues that people have with you is projection that they're just not dealing yes. with. Mm-hmm. So it's totally fine. And people growing up, it gets no better when you're an adult. Same issues that people just haven't taken the time to, you know, figure out for themselves. Yes. See, that's the scam. I thought when I got older, it would end. It got it worse. worse. <laughs> <laughs> no one told me it would get worse. Way worse. But we have to mention, like, have to speak about New Orleans. I'm from Houston, and I feel like our cities kind of have the same kind of cult-like pride. Mm-hmm. Like, if, you're, if you meet someone from Houston or New Orleans, you're going to know within five minutes, like, where yes. they're from, like, who they rep. Oh, so we're just throwing part of the five Philadelphia from. out the window? Like, we're just going to throw Philly <laughs> in the pool? <laughs> no, go ahead. It wasn't until I moved from Houston to New York where I realized there are little cult-like things about Houston that weren't normal. Like, pledging to the Texas flag wasn't normal. Like, the fact that we learned to do that before I learned my alphabet was weird. <laughs> But it's just something growing up, like, I'm so prideful of Megan the Stallion and, like, Beyonce, and it's a pride that I walk around with. So, like, can you explain or get into, like, this New Orleans pride that you feel for the city, that it's home, and, like, how that goes into your music? Well, you know, New Orleans is a big part of who I am. You know, the city helped build, you know, my character. The city helped, you know, me to embrace the things that I had to face and deal with. Um, New Orleans is a place where we deal with a lot of different stuff. We struggle with a lot of different stuff. We've seen a lot. You know, we've dealt with a lot of different problems in New Orleans. But New Orleans also helped to build my courage and my confidence and to be able to deal with all these different things that I have faced. You know, a lot of times um, as I was growing with the music, I started in choir and I, you know, eventually switched over to bounce music. But New Orleans has always embraced me in both roles, you know, being a choir director. And for such a long time, I did so many things with the choir. I traveled around the world. I, you know, sung and and went to all these different workshops. And as time went on and when I finally switched over, I knew then that New Orleans had my back, you know. 
Um, in everything that I did, it was just a place where I grew up, you know, um, my neighborhood, Josephine Street was, you know, it taught me a lot. The people around Josephine taught me a lot. The people in my high school and in my middle school taught me a lot. So New Orleans has a big part to deal with, with my music. It helped me to be able to express myself through my music. Some of the things that I saw as a kid and, and as an adult, you know, my city has definitely helped me to, to create the character of being from being Big Freddy to being Big Frida. Um, mm-hmm. I have a lot to thank New Orleans for. If it wasn't for New Orleans, I wouldn't even be known in the music game. They helped carry me for 10 years before I even stepped out of New Orleans and started to, um, you know, make myself grow in this music stuff. So they have been a big part of my journey. And a lot of times the place where we grow up and if we stay there, they're definitely going to be a part of your journey just being from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I purposely, I'm in New York now, but I will fly to Houston to only go to Beyonce's concerts in Houston because it feels it different. <laughs> like, it feels like she's like, like, I know her. Like, we're from uh-huh. the same place. Like, this, you're performing for your people. How are your concerts different in other cities versus when you're home in New Orleans? Like, what is the crowd Just like? Just like you said, it, it's something different when you go home. So, like, when I come and do a show at New Orleans, it's not like any other shows that I do around the world. The people embrace you. They know you. Mm-hmm. A lot of times mm-hmm. you have people that you grew up with in the audience or people that you know you personally. So it's just a different connection when you perform at home. They know the music. They, they've they been knowing the music since you came out. So they know like all of your, your beginning stuff along to the middle right. through to where you are now. <laughs> so it's a great feeling. I mean, nobody shakes like us in New Orleans. So when I'm doing a New Orleans, it's like the first word I can say, I got the whole audience behind me versus when I'm out of town, I might have to do some, a little call and response teaching. I might have to do a little example twerk of how you do it properly. So it just depends on the actual place. But when I'm in New Orleans, I definitely feel all of the love. And I guess you know, the originality of being at home. You you just feel all of the people who have been supporting you for such a long time and you can feel it in the room. Mm-hmm. But if you had to pinpoint it though, because I feel like even people, people that grow up in New Orleans, that's one thing, like obviously that's your hometown, right? And it's a very special place. But I feel like even people that don't <laughs> live, aren't from New Orleans, but they go to visit, like it's something in the water? Like, what is the special sauce? Is it the gumbo? Is it the Patty O'Brien hurricanes? Like, what is it? It's just a unique place. There's no other place like it in the world. And I think it's the spirit of the people mm-hmm. that makes it what it is. You know, the spirit of New Orleans, the, the, the people that makes New Orleans what it is. And I think that's what gravitates and, and, and make people it appreciate New Orleans so much. You know, it's the food, it's the culture, it's the music, it's the daiquiris, it's Bourbon Street, it's all of it. And, and it makes, you know, us appreciate the whole culture of New Orleans. Yeah, I think people really don't realize it, but like you're taking part in Black culture when you go down to New Orleans. Like that's what's getting you together. That's what's making you fall in love with this city because yeah. there's so many beautiful Black people specifically down in New Orleans and you're getting a taste of that culture. Like let's not get it confused. Oh, yeah. That's a that's a little bit of what that special sauce oh, is. Oh yeah, you definitely get that a whole lot here. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> we are chocolate city. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Kirby and I are both huge fans of Beyonce. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Love her. And having you on Formation was, I remember the moment I listened to Formation and I immediately knew that you were yep. on it. And then I seen clips on the web of when her tour came to New Orleans and like you performed with that crowd. Can you tell us a little bit about how the duet came about and then what it felt like to perform that in your hometown. Well, Beyonce's publicist reached out to my publicist and said that Beyonce wanted to talk to me. I said, well, girl, why is you on the phone? (laughs) So I was sitting at home waiting for the call and when she finally called, she asked that I know who this was and I was like, girl, now be for real. Of course I know who this is. There's only one queen. (laughs) So we spoke and she said that she had a project that she wanted to get me on. It's something like a three-second clip where it was very short that I couldn't really do nothing with it. So me and my DJ, we took the three seconds. It might have been five seconds. We took it and we looped it. I went to the studio. I recorded some lyrics that you heard. I sent it back to her. She said, oh, my God, this is perfect. I love it. Next thing I knew, I was at a parade for Endemia Night. I was walking up the street and some people started running up to me saying, oh, my God, you're a big freak. I just heard you on the Beyonce song. I said, oh, my God, I didn't hear myself on the Beyonce song. (laughs) I didn't know that it had made it to the on the track or, you know, that it was released or anything, because, you know, they're very hush about everything. So it just pops up out of nowhere on this big parade night. People running up to me from all different angles. So I called my manager and said, the Beyonce song is out. He said, holy shit, you're lying. So I went he went running to his car to get to the emails because they had so many people out there. The reception was just horrible. I leave the parade and walk down a few blocks so that I can hear the song come back. I'm super excited. Oh my God, I'm on a song with Beyonce. I can't believe this. You know, so as time went on, people started cutting up about why you're not in the video and this and that. And I'm like, girl, mm-hmm. look, I'm not worrying about none of that. I'm on a song with Beyonce. I'm grateful for this. And when the time finally did come where she asked me to perform with her in New Orleans, you know, I knew she was coming. I was like, they got to call me, girl. They come into the hometown. They got to call me. (laughs) The night before the concert, they called. Wow. Like literally the night before the concert, they was calling. It was like, okay, do you, can you get yourself together for this? I'm like going crazy at home, freaking out. (laughs) This thing, I don't know what I'm going to wear. I don't have no look for this. This is big. Like I need, I need a couple of months to prepare for this. This is Beyonce. So lo and behold, I had something fabulous in the closet that I had never wore. (laughs) And it actually matched with what they had, you know, going on. All they did was provided me with a big hat. But when it was time and the, that day came, I was so nervous. I was like, I can't believe this is happening, but I'm also excited. And when I hit that stage and people heard my voice and I opened my mouth, there was no feeling like it of 70,000 people from your hometown that's supporting you and going crazy. It was like the electricity in the room, you could feel the stadium shaking. That's how Mm. powerful it was. My sister and all of them was out there. She was like, 
like literally the floor was shaking. She was like, I thought it was going to collapse how crazy people were going. <laughs> and I had my whole family there, my whole team, you know, a lot of people that I knew were like right in the front supporting me. It was such a great honor and such a great privilege to to do the show with Beyonce, especially in my hometown. But that was probably one of the best feelings of being in concert ever in life thus far. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. I got chills thinking about it. <laughs> and right before I went on stage, she comes, we like, we both under the stage because I came out of her original spot that she normally come out when she do the show and she did switch the spot that she will come out. But like right before I hit the stage, she comes out of nowhere and kiss me on my jaw on the stage right before we hit the stage. And child, I like the passed out right then and there. I like the die. <laughs> <laughs> and that would have been okay. We would have put the I corpse like, right on the stage. Oh my God. Like I didn't wash my face not at all that night. <laughs> I was gonna say that. I was like, I, I still wouldn't have washed it. Like <laughs> that is so funny. Oh my God. I don't even know how we go from there. <laughs> no, I had like goosebumps. Like the moment you started, I was like, I, I'm wearing a sweatshirt. I'm freezing. I'm, oh. Yeah, I'm letting you know in the office, Amira definitely has Beyonce merch on, on her desk. I and I have some in my office too. Okay. So. Next, yes. next to the Queen Bee is about to be Queen Diva. So don't worry about it whenever we see <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> um, now, I do want to get a little deep with you, Frida, just because I think, I want you to understand like how big of an interview this is for us and kind of what you mean to us. And I think when we got that email, it was bigger than, of course, we love you and we love your music and we love everything you stand for. We stand for you. Right. But like, I took a second and I was like, I was like wondering like, why am I so like emotional about this? And I really believe that my friend Cherie brought you to us. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a really quick story because I want to focus this on you and I promise it'll come back. But, um, I had a, a really good friend in, um, at, at school. Um, she actually is my, my line sister and she lived in new Orleans for about five or six years, t- not from new Orleans, but when I'm talking about that special sauce, she was actually the reason I learned about bounce music. She's how I became in love with you. Um, and you would have never known like if you talk to her, you would think she's from New Orleans. Like, she's New Orleans through and through. Long story short, uh, about almost like two years to the day, it was around Mardi Gras time, and you're talking about the Endymion Parade, and I, like, rung a bell. I was like, why do I know that? And unfortunately, um, she was killed by a drunk driver. And it was really hard, right? Like, you talk about, in your book, another thing that really hit home for me, and I want to quote you just because I was like, oh my gosh, she's talking to me. Um, You were talking about after the funeral of your first manager, KT, you talk about how the city, New Orleans at the time, was filled with so much joy and tragedy all at the same time. And that's how it is in New Orleans, right? And that's how it is for me now, too. It's like a city where I can smile from ear to ear. I know when I'm going, I'm going to have a good time. I'm on Bourbon Street. I'm on all, like, the places that you go once you're in NOLA. But now it has this really heaviness to it, too, like, to the point where it's like, I also think of a lot of tragedy and grief, and it takes me right back to that spot. And you, you've you known a lot of tragedy yourself. So you, you talk in the book about losing your brother to gun violence. Obviously, you lost your mother. You yourself have been shot at before. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, how like do you bounce back from grief and tragedy? Like, How does New Orleans still hold this beauty in your eyes after you've seen so much, even from the time you were a kid to now? You know, I think the city has a big part um, to play in that with, you know, 
a lot of times when we have tragedy, we take tragedy and we celebrate the person's life, you know, and I try to remember the good times. I try to remember the good memories that I have with those people. You know, I think that the most important part for me is through prayer, though, through the prayer. And that's what gives me my strength and talking to God and keeping me grounded in, in, in all of these people that I've lost. Because grief can take you in certain directions, up or down, you know. And I try to let my grief take me up where that I don't let it affect me to the point where I'm, you know, in a bad space. I'm walking around moping. And I try to remember what would those people want me to do? How would they want me to react to certain tragedies that happen in my life? People ask me all the time, how do I get through? And my solution is the two Ps. I keep praying and I keep pushing. Mm. And that's what gets me through all of the things that I have seen, all of the things that are unforeseen. I have my moments, though. I'm, I'm human just like everybody else. I have my moments where I'm very depressed. You know, I cry. But I try to remember the good times and the laughter of things that can make me smile and remember them and all the good times that we had, you know, and that's what gets me through, Um, you know, and keeping good energy and good people around you um, is very important, especially in those times. And and a lot of times I get a lot of love from all around the world. And that's what helped Mm -hmm. me as well. You know, people always sending me great messaging, you know, on all my different platforms. You know, people sends me flowers, all different type of stuff. And it's just, I think, the love and support that gets me through as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're big on energy here, too. I think the one thing, the second I meet you, I can tell, oh, God, <laughs> yeah, this ain't going to work. Or like, yeah, we're going to be best friends. Yeah. You feel that energy. And that that's real. Yeah. That's what helps me get through each day, you know. And prayer is the number one thing. Continue to pray. Keep my, my mind in good spirit. And... A word of God always can, can can change my day or a gospel song will definitely lift me up in so many different ways. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, I just want to say thank you because I feel like thank you. Your your vulnerability and everything that you stand for and share. Um, it just it was kind of the perfect moment for us to be talking to you. And I heard you, Cherie. Thank you for bringing Big Frida to us. <laughs> um, I feel you working. So thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. And while we're on grief, I was talking to a coworker recently about how I feel like I've been grieving since the beginning of 2020, really, through now, because it's just been so much, right? It's in the pandemic. Yeah. And then what I hope has sparked real change is George Floyd's murder, like, really shook the world, and it should have. Like, everyone needed to pay attention. And I don't know if it was because it was the pandemic, everyone was in stop still, they finally paid attention to this one event, And for me, it was like, and I'm sure for Kirby, speak for you if it was on you, but like grieving while we were at work was hard because we're grieving as Black people for this man that I don't know personally, Mm -hmm. but like I would tear up thinking about his family and his friends. And I felt, I felt like it was a very public grieving because our coworkers and bosses knew we weren't okay. You were friends with George Floyd. And is there anything that you can touch on about like how you grieved his death or if you were still grieving it? And if there's anything special about him that the world does not know. You know, um, George was my friend and he was a gentle giant. And, you know, they only showed you one side of him on TV, you know, very small clipping of who he was. And it really affected me, you know, in, in a way that I wasn't prepared for because 
when I first watched the clipping, I didn't realize that it was him until, you know, people started saying his name and, and where it happened at. And I'm like, wait, my friend lives there, you know? And lo and behold, our driver who was in Minneapolis, he called me, said that was George, your security guard. And I'm, you gotta be kidding me. And my whole world changed. I, I was upset. I was angry. I was sad. I was, you know, I had so many different emotions going at the time, especially because this was somebody who has been in my presence, who I hung out with, you know, who always called and checked up on me, who always texted me. And so it, it really bothered me, you know, for a long time. It still bothered me every time, you know, we talked about it or it's brought up, you know, it, it makes me a little emotional. Being that, you know, unfortunate, his life was taken for something so simple, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that the situation could have been handled different, you know. Um, but it did get the attention of the world and it, it got the attention of the black community, especially of stuff that has been going on with us for a while now. And we finally started to put it in, in the public's eye uh, where everybody can see it around the world. So, I, you know, his death was a loss and, 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 and a tragic for all of us, but it also brought some light into what's going on in the black community and what needs to change. So what's, you know, well, a lot of times we don't understand why things happen and God does everything for a reason. And this was definitely for a reason. And um, so George will forever be remembered. His his name and his story is for a bigger purpose of in life. And who would have ever knew that he was the chosen one to make this change for the world? I'm just glad I had an opportunity to meet him and to know him and to be friends with him. And he will forever be missed and his story will forever be a part of history now. And and that's what gives me a little bit of light and hope that one day in the history books, we'll be able to talk about George Floyd and how his movement started something bigger for the Black community. hundred percent. Is there anything about his personality that you wish that the world knew? I mean, just how funny he was, like, as a character. He was so funny. Like (laughs) I said, he was a big, gentle giant. You know, he was this big, tall guy, you know, full of love and light and energy and muscle. But he was so soft and kind. And, you know, he valued so many things. And when he was laying on that ground and he called for his mama, you know, I just... My heart just, like, it felt like it was crumbling in that, you know, this would, for any mom that will have to deal with this or face this or see this, you know, it was very tragic. But like I said, George's story will forever be remembered. And just the spirit of him, he was so sweet and so kind. He would always text me and say, when you going to take your big brother on the road? I'm ready to be on the road permanently <laughs> with you. And, you know, it's always something that stopped different things from happening. And I wish I would have been able to take him on the road. And, and you know, sometimes I'd say, well, maybe if he was on the road with you, he wouldn't have been there. So, um, you know, I, I still think about it every day, all the time and, and, and just trying to figure out how I can still come to terms with what happened and if I could have done anything to change it. Yeah. I'm glad that we kind of 
have this space to talk to one another about it, especially with someone that's so personal, like has such a personal connection to him, because I feel like we lacked that at work. We weren't able to talk about it because our managers didn't know how to talk about it because our managers don't look like you or I. Um, So it, it was a struggle, but I think like you're saying, his legacy will live on forever and there's a bigger purpose for his being and we'll continue to talk about it and give it the attention that it needs because it was a biggie. It definitely, he definitely made an entrance and a mark on this world. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Well, we can't have an interview with you and not talk about bounce (laughs) or music. So let's talk music, um, lighten up the mood a little bit more. But for anyone that may not be familiar with it, what is bounce music? Well, when I, you know, tell what bounce music is, I say, well, bounce music is New Orleans. And when I describe it, it's up-tempo, it's heavy bass, call-and-response type music. It's a subgenre of hip-hop. It has a lot to do with shaking of the ass and twerking and, and <laughs> wiggling and wobbling and Peter Panning and all the good things that comes <laughs> with it. You know, it's a fun music, though. It's a party music that changes the atmosphere. You put on a bounce song and the room lights up. I've been in the game for over 20 years now, so... Bounce music has been a big part of my life and and the culture of New Orleans. I grew up listening to it. They had great pioneers that came before me and set the tone and the originators of it. So I'm just grateful to be a part of something so big and something so special. I grew up as a kid listening to it. I never would have thought that I would be at the forefront of it and leading the race. And, but you just never know what God has in store for your journey. And, um, I'm grateful to be a part of the culture. You know, it's a fun, fun thing that I love so much. And I just honestly, I love my craft. And when you love your craft, you enjoy what you do and you have fun and you make people have fun. And when I, you know, when I perform, I want to, you know, bring New Orleans, a little part of New Orleans with me. And we have a New Orleans party no matter where I go. Yep. Because of you, you have me bumping Christmas music in January. Yes. Yes, honey. (laughs) Better be. (laughs) Better be. Better be. Absolutely. (laughs) On this note, because we were researching and trying to figure out what the difference is and if there was a need to differentiate between bounce and sissy bounce. No such thing. So there was an article that came out a while back and they titled it Sissy Bounce. And that's where they tried to you know, separated, put us in a different category. It's just bounce music. We all do bounce music at the end of the day. We all been doing this music. We never separated here in New Orleans. You know, you have some gay artists. Of course, you have tons of straight artists. And we just we just have bounce music. There's no such thing as sissy bounce. It's all bounce music. And that, the reporter messed up on that, child, and I've been fighting with that ever since. I've been shooting that shit down. <laughs> Since since it came out from that first article, and that's been years now. Oh, my God. Well, listen up, people, because you've said it straight right here. So we'll make sure that we get the message out there. Yeah, <laughs> no such thing. Straight bounce music, no sissy bounce. <laughs> <laughs> kind of on that note, there are very few openly queer artists in hip-hop. How do you feel about the hip-hop industry not completely embracing queer artists? Well, you know, I think... Over time, things will continue to grow. Um, It's just like anything that we do. Um, You know, it's baby steps to getting your feet in the door. And I have been, and a a lot of other artists have been, you know, breaking barriers and knocking doors down and making opportunities for a lot of other queer artists out there. And I think just over time, things will continue to grow and flourish for 
different gay artists. Um, as you can see, we are more visible now. And I think keeping yourself visible and making great content will get people in, in the right direction. Um, continue to be themselves. Continue to have the right people and team around them will make you grow. Over the years, I saw where I was at one point and I have grown a whole lot and, and doors have opened in the hip hop world. I don't have too many issues with people, with me being gay. And I think it's all about the way that you carry yourself and you present yourself and you, whatever project that you present yourself. We're more visible than ever now. You see a lot more gay artists, you see a lot more gay people on TV screens, you see a lot more people in the hair and makeup world. Um, mm -hmm. So I think we are, getting you know we're getting there it just one day at a time it will continue to grow and for the next generations coming us folks who are setting the tone now will keep on you know opening doors for the next generation and they have to continue to grow be themselves and make some things happen mm -hmm. who are you listening to now who has been getting you through quarantine like who has been motivating you recently or just feels like inspired different? I've been listening to a little bit of, you know, everything that's hot, you know, that that's on the radio from all of the hip hop rappers to all of the fabulous girls that have been coming out. You know, everything you hear on the radio, I'm keeping up with all of that, you know, all the stuff. But honestly, just to like say who I'm sitting at home and putting on, mm -hmm. really no one. Because a lot of times I'm trying to keep my mind clearer so that when I'm creating, I'm not using people's sounds or their samples mm -hmm. or incorporating their music into mine. So and when I'm in my car, I'm jamming. If I want to throw on a little tune while I'm getting ready, you know, this depends on what mood I'm in. I'm always willing to throw on Beyonce, you know. When I'm getting ready, I'm supporting the different local artists here in New Orleans. I, I know all the different bounce songs that's coming out. So I'm keeping up, but I'm also staying away from a certain things. That way I can keep my mind at ease when I'm creating my sound. Because I'm always in the studio and I'm working on all of my new music. Just finished with the Christmas album, working on my new EP that will be dropping around March. I'm working on a gospel project. I'm working on a kid's album. So I have all kinds of projects that I'm working on as well. Yeah, um, I love that for the yeah. kids. A little kid's bop, you know? Yeah, a little yeah, kid's, kids bop. bop. <laughs> kids, no little bop. I'm loving it. <laughs> One of the reasons Amir and I started this podcast was really, you know, we wanted an opportunity to talk to some of our faves, right? The people that came before us that have been setting examples and helping us kind of navigate this space in the world, this space for us to be ourselves, because we didn't see it a lot, right? You can't be what you can't see. And I think you touch on it um, throughout the way that you move in life. You have to give back a little bit, right? So anyone oh, yeah. you can take under your wing, you do it. Oh, so yeah. I guess I'd be remiss to not ask what advice do you have for, you know, young Black boys and girls who might be struggling with their identity or themselves or anything for that matter, their careers? What advice does Big Frida have for them as they navigate this world that, quite frankly, isn't always for them or looking out for them? First and foremost, you have to love yourself before you can go out and want the world to love you. And you have to accept who you are, embrace who you are, and I think everything else will follow and fall in place. You're going to have some struggles, some ups and downs. You're going to have some people that's going to have your back. You're going to have some people that's not supporters. And I think that the most important thing is to continue to be consistent in whatever you do. 
give it your all. I've just been very consistent. I've given it my all. I put myself into whatever I do. I, I give it 100. And I think keeping the, the right people around you, the right positive energy, people who love you, you know, for you is very important to keep that around you, that good energy and that, to have you in a good space. And if it's something that's not for you, you will know. And you need to keep those people from away away from you. And the most important thing is to love you first, though, before you can go out and ask anybody to love you and to accept what you're trying to put on. Right. Amen. Oh gosh, yes. Girl down. <laughs> Girl down. <laughs> One last question. You mentioned teaching different fans your call. Will you teach us your call? Well, thank y'all so much for having me. This is the one and only Big Fruit of the Queen Diva, your best of believer. You already know. Girl down. The Table is Ours is produced by us, Kirby Dixon and Amira Lawali. This episode was also produced by McKamey Lynn and edited by Dan Rosado. Our executive producers are Ted Butler and Jesse Katz. The Table is Ours was created by A&E. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.